Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Dina Jabor, and I am part of the Chantilly Community Group. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 through 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Y'all hear me? All right. As Pastor Derek mentioned, I am from Alabama. I did go to the University of Alabama. That's why I was invited to speak when Pastor Howard is on sabbatical. Um, He won't let me. We just can't be in the same room, I guess. Um, And yeah, Pastor Pastor Amari started the RUF at UNC Charlotte, where we're at. Um, Here we go. So, yeah, our son's middle name is Amari. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. Uh, but I'm excited to be with you all this morning. I'd uh, love to meet you. If I haven't, I know some of you already. Uh, I'm coming to y'all, uh, coming here this morning in a little bit of a weird place emotionally, kind of a lot of things going on. Uh, got to go on vacation with some of my family from back home two weeks ago. Uh, that was great. It's great to be with family. We haven't gotten to be with them. In a long time. Um, then my grandpa passed away this past week, which was difficult for me and my family and my mom in particular, uh, who's kind of been off and on taking care of him a little bit over the years. Um, and then yesterday, if you guys know the Snyder family, I got to officiate Matthew Snyder's wedding because um, him and his wife Erin met through our RUF, which is another fruit of Amari and me. <laughs> Um, so if you know the Snyder family at all, you know that wedding was a lot of fun. Um, it was a beautiful time, brought a lot of happiness. And then uh, I've been like many of you, maybe struggling with and marinating on the situations in Afghanistan and Haiti, um, and just everything going on in the world, the sadness, the physical hurt that people are experiencing or will experience, uh, and feeling like we're on the other side of the world, just kind of watching, not knowing what we can do. And then I'm going to leave here in a little bit. It was a busy weekend. The wedding yesterday here. And then we've got the UNC Charlotte. Actually, if you didn't hear this, this is random aside. They're not called just Charlotte. They changed their name this past week. It's now, it's no longer UNC Charlotte. You just say Charlotte. So 
you learned something today. Um, we're heading over to campus, my wife and I and baby Jackie, uh, for the student org fair. It's where they set up all the tables around campus and all the student organizations. I think there's technically online, there's a 518 student organizations. And we all set up tables and students, new students are on campus. They walk around uh, meeting different orgs and we're all trying to convince them to join our group instead of the 517 other groups. And some of the students, just moved into campus or new to campus are uh, excited about the semester, about being in Charlotte. Uh, some of them have fears they're coming in with related to COVID situation. Am I going to get sick? Am I going to get someone I love sick? Are they going to shut down classes in a few weeks? Don't know what's going to happen. And some students are just excited to be out of their house for maybe just normal reasons, maybe because they have a difficult home life. Um, there's students across the spectrum that are going to show up today and this week and start classes. Spectrum of emotional, uh, physical, spiritual, mental, different places that they're in. And they're all showing up, especially if they're a new student, looking for somewhere to belong to. Like, who can be my people here? Who can I spend my time with? Who can be my community? And on my side, if I'm honest with y'all, uh, again, I show up to this org fair today, and I, a pastor, a new dad, I get to show up to campus and be terrified of 18-year-olds and their judging eyes, um, just hoping that they like me or they like RUF. It feels like the first day of middle school a little bit, except everyone's younger than you, and somehow the rejection hurts worse. Uh, now, why am I telling all of this, bringing all of this up? I'm telling you because I want you to, along with me, recognize the variety of pain, suffering, hurt, anxiety, all of it going on in places that we can't even fathom and imagine, like Afghanistan or Haiti, in my and your personal lives, in the range of emotions that these new students are feeling, and they're bringing into today, and I don't mean to equate all these things necessarily, these varying levels of pain and hurt, but we are all in some ways hurting. I don't care who you are or what you try to convince yourself or me or others, but you're hurting in some way. I don't know how you could go, past, go through the past couple of years and not be hurting right now, whether it's physical pain, literal pain, whether it's emotional, maybe rejection, from fan, friends or family over the last few years? Maybe it's you struggling in a relationship, feeling like you don't know some folks as well as you maybe thought you did. For some, it's spiritual. Maybe every time you feel like uh, you kind of take a step forward with God, you know, we're vibing, things are going great, something happens, and you take two steps back. And for maybe it's just the overwhelming weight of just everything going on in the world right now. We're all hurting, and we're all feeling it in some way. And thankfully, this is really sad, but start so far, but thankfully, this book, this book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, we're going through at Christ Central, this book is a book for people that hurt. And I haven't caught every sermon in the series, but, so maybe what I'm going to talk about is old to you, maybe you've heard it, maybe Pastor Josh or someone else has covered it, but as there is with any book that you read, there's a particular context that was written in, right? The book of Mark 
is telling the story of Jesus into a particular context at the time that it was originally written. And that context is suffering. See, the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome in the first century. And at that time, if you don't know, Rome had an emperor named Nero. Nero wanted to build for himself a monument called the Golden Palace. If you know anything else about Rome at the time, you know it was crammed full of people, this massive empire. It was so full of people that if you bought like a piece of land, if you're like, I'm going to build a house here, you had to also buy the airspace above your house because someone could just build on top of you. That's how crowded it was. You had to buy air. And because it was so packed full of people, like being anywhere near Bank of America Stadium after a Panthers game, it's like a small taste, but it's so full of people, there's nowhere to build a monument for the emperor Nero, right? Particularly one as big as he wanted for himself. So after spending some time searching for where he's going to build this monument to glorify him, he actually found a spot that would be great. It was a part of the city, he thought, I could clear this part out pretty easily, this part of the city. And of course, the part of town that he found was considered the slums of Rome. The, it's where the poor people lived in the city. And stop me if you've heard this story before, but he thought, hey, impoverished people, poor people, doesn't matter, no one's going to care, I'll just take this land for myself. So rather than deal with actually moving these people out in an appropriate way, he decides to do something even more convenient, and he just sets it on fire, the land, to clear out for his monument. And unfortunately, for Nero, some other stuff happens. that We won't get into all the details today, but basically people start getting suspicious that maybe he, the emperor, was a part of this massive fire. And so scared he's going to get found out, what does Nero decide to do? He finds a scapegoat. He finds someone to blame it on other than him. So how about we blame the fire on this new countercultural straight-up weird group of people called Christians. It was first century Rome. People were hesitant about these people who claimed they'd been saved by this guy who died on a cross and rose again. So the state began rounding up Christians, and massive killings happened in the Roman Empire to Christians. A second-century historian writes of these murders by the state. He says, although these Christians deserved to be punished for their stubbornness as they wouldn't recant their ways. The other people were rather moved to pity, for they saw that the Christians were suffering, not for the crime of arson, but to satisfy one man's cruelty. And even worse than that, not only were Christians in first century Rome killed, they also, if you survive, you were a social outcast in many ways. See, Christians had begun doing this new thing, first century Rome, called the Lord's Supper, you might have heard of it, uh, where they say that the bread is the body of Christ, and they drink this wine they call the blood of Christ. Now, those of you who are new to church, like, you agree that sounds weird, uh, but if you've been in the church for a long time, you might not, like, stop back, step back to think what that sounds like. It sounds a little strange. At least we can kind of look back and be like, well, Christians, millions of people throughout the globe for 2,000 years have been doing this. Okay, I can accept it. But in Rome, when people first started doing this, people thought they were cannibals. They ate the flesh and drank the blood of their master. 
And on top of that, they're all calling each other brother and sister. It sounds weird and kind of culty if you have no idea what's going on. And so in Rome, not only do you have a chance to be put to death for being a Christian, but even if you survive, you're probably going to be a social outcast, and everyone's going to think you're just a weirdo. So with all this, it's thought that Mark wrote this gospel account in Rome at this time. So kind of keep that picture. This is the context that Mark's gospel was written in. These are the times and these are the people that Mark's account of Jesus was first given to. To be a Christian at this time was costly. Now I may get into, I don't think I will get in trouble for this, but maybe I'm invited back after a day, maybe not. But what suffering as a Christian in Rome looks like, what suffering as a Christian in Afghanistan today or other places around the world right now can look like when someone tells you that being a Christian in America is being persecuted for your faith, I struggle with that. Um, it doesn't mean that being a Christian can't lead to your life potentially being more challenging and complicated and difficult and relational difficulties because of your faith. I don't want to minimize those of you who may struggle in those ways. But it is a tough look to compare the suffering of America for Jesus compared to what it looks like across the globe, across history. Um, and I'm making this point because I want to validate to you that many of you are suffering in big and small ways in ways that many of us may not be able to imagine. And I want us to see, as we read this text, as we read this story of Jesus, that the original audience of this book was a group of people who were on the end of unfathomable suffering. So when we think about Christians, we think of followers of Jesus in Rome, in first century Rome. And in Mark 8, where Jesus tells folks to take up their cross and follow him, Think about what that meant to the Christians in Rome. To a people in hiding because they're going to be put to death for their beliefs. And think about Mark writing those words for them. And let that trickle down to us today and what that means in our lives. This passage and this book takes on a whole new meaning in this context. The book of Mark is a book for people going through hard times. And though it looks different, again, for different people, this includes hard times in Rome in the first century and includes hard times for those in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2021. So with all that in mind, let's briefly look at our passage again today, kind of considering what this book is in this context. And when the sixth hour had come, verse 33, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now let's stop right there. What is Jesus saying here? Or at least, why is he saying it? You might have missed this. It's easy to do. Uh, but when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was using a verse from the Old Testament to connect with how he was feeling on the cross and let others know what was happening. See, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That line that he says, um, it's actually the first lines of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a song of, in the book of Psalms. It's a psalm of David, uh, a time when David is hurting. And he's feeling pain and suffering, and he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Psalm 22 is a psalm of a man who's hurting. And so we'll read the psalm here in a second, but the, the whole first half of the psalm is about David's pain, his crying out to God, where are you? What's going on? And about halfway through, the tone, you'll hear it, the tone shifts about halfway through and changes from the cries of someone suffering to David saying, but I trust you, God. You got me. You saved me. It's a tone shift halfway through the psalm with someone who recognizes that though things are hard and feel like they can go from bad to worse, David knows he can trust God because despite how things look, despite how things feel and can be at the time, God is at work. He trusts that he can cry out to God, that it's a safe place to cry out to God and say, God, why are you leaving me out to dry when I need you most? He can call out like that to God because he knows that in the end, God will deliver. And in our passage today, Jesus dying on the cross. Maybe you've heard this story a thousand times before, maybe it's the first time, but Jesus dying on the cross with his last breath is quoting from this psalm of David, and he's identifying with the suffering in the psalm. But he also identifies with the hope at the end, which we'll get to in a minute. So now that you know what's happening in this Psalm 22, let's read it together. It's a little long, so hang with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see kind of the tone shift happening here. And I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from them, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord of the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Again, I told you that was kind of long, but do you see what I was talking about? There's, these are clearly the words Jesus is quoting on the cross. These are the words of someone who's hurting in a huge way. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night I find no rest. I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by people. These are the words of someone who hurts. On the cross, when he quotes the first line from the psalm, Jesus is saying, if that's how you feel, that's how I feel right now too. I hurt with you. I'm on this cross and I'm dying and I feel your pain. Even though you may be going through it like David in Psalm 22, you're not alone, he says. And what does this mean? It means that if you showed up this morning and you're scared or you're hurting or you're suffering, no matter where you came from this morning, this means that Jesus sees you. He felt your pain on the cross. And though you're not going to necessarily be immediately, miraculously removed from your circumstances, this does mean that you don't have to face your pain alone. There's one who came before us 2,000 years ago who died on a cross, and in his final moments he chose to say, if you hurt, you're the one I'm looking for. You're not alone. But hold on, he doesn't just stop there. And we could close up the sermon there and go home, I think that's pretty good word for a sermon, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just Jesus experiencing our lows with us. On the cross, he felt our suffering, our pain, but that's not all he has to offer us. A Jesus that gets down in it with you, but then leaves you there is great, but we're still missing something. And so I'm a huge basketball fan, particularly the NBA, This is going to be a really long analogy, so I hope you all like basketball because I'm about to go for it. Um, I already asked Marianne, my wife, to like apologize, or I've like, oh, apologize to her because it's going to be so long. Uh, But I love the NBA. Unfortunately, it feels like most people in Charlotte just want to talk about college basketball. You have an NBA team here, and you don't care about it. Um, Bums me out. And so I'm originally from Alabama, so I didn't really have a team growing up. It's not a pro team in Alabama. I followed the NBA, some of the stars, but when I started dating my wife, Mary Ann, in 2011, I finally had a team to root for. She was from Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City Thunder, the team where she was from. So that was then, now today, someone 10 years later, deep in the cult of Oklahoma City Thunder fandom. Uh, I can tell you that a lot of Thunder fans that are from Oklahoma City are super prideful for their city and their team. They have this like chip on their shoulder like, they know they didn't really deserve to get a basketball team. And they're, like, kind of hoping no one really notices that Oklahoma City got a basketball team. They know they're not a destination city like L.A. or New York. So they hope just everyone just kind of accepts them and lets them kind of do their thing. 
uh, in their front office, like the general manager, they want to be like the Spurs. If you know how the Spurs play, this like passing team, ball-oriented uh, system. It's like this culture that the fan base has kind of adopted with the team. It's really fascinating to kind of watch it all unfold, the city's identity kind of taking on the team. But if you follow the NBA at all, you'll know that the most controversial player they've had play for them was Russell Westbrook. If you don't know, so Russ was drafted by Oklahoma City Thunder. He was from Los Angeles. He went to college at UCLA. He loves fashion. And he plays some of what some people consider the most anti-team basketball you'll ever see. Uh, Again, I told you, if you don't like basketball, I hope you're sticking with me, trying your best. Um, When Russ was on the team with a guy named Kevin Durant, maybe you know him, uh, a lot of the fan base... A lot of Oklahoma City Thunder fans got frustrated with Russell Westbrook uh, because he wouldn't pass the ball to KD. Kevin Durant, one of the most offensively talented basketball players in the history of the NBA. So Russ was this dude who was antithetical in a lot of ways to Oklahoma City. They want to be team-first, pass-oriented players, which he was not. He was almost every fan's second favorite player behind Kevin Durant. Some of you do know basketball. know where I'm going a little bit here. Um, and that was never going to change. He was always going to be second best, second favorite to Kevin Durant until it did change. Kevin Durant left the team to go to Golden State and became the most hated man in Oklahoma State history. Uh, so the fan base was left with this guy, Russell Westbrook. This dude had always been their second favorite, sometimes called a ball hog, who loved fashion and lived in Oklahoma City. And everyone's left wondering, like, I guess we, like, tear it down now. We just trade all our players and rebuild through the draft, tank. There's no way Russell Westbrook, of all people, is going to stick it out here with us in Oklahoma. He's going to go back to L.A., do his thing. It's been fun while it lasted. But then, a year later, Russ chose to re-sign with Oklahoma City. You know, there's always moments in your life that you remember where you were, like the birth of your child, um, your wedding day, the day that Russ resigned. I was in Atlanta taking a class. We all have these moments, right? Um, Russ chose to stay and admit everything to the fans. It felt like this guy, like we're not going to win anything without Kevin Durant here, but this guy is going to stick it out with us, and at least for a few years, he's going give to it, give it a go and just try He's going to stick it out and suffer with us, just working, trying to make it happen. And he'll forever be a legend in Oklahoma City because of it. But we never won anything with Russ. After Durant left, we never passed the first round of the playoffs. So sad. He never brought a championship to Oklahoma City. And part of me thinks that due to the circumstances, like there'll never be a player as beloved in Oklahoma City as this guy who stuck it out with us when he didn't have to, when he could have gone off to L.A., There'll never be anyone like him or to surpass him. But that's not true. If a young, rich, famous basketball player chooses to stay in Oklahoma City in the future and then wins a championship, that guy's going to pass Russ. Why? Because Russ stayed in the trenches with us in Oklahoma City. I told you all this was a long analogy. We're almost going to finish it. Uh, Russ stayed with us in the trenches in OKC, of all places, and it meant everything. He chose to struggle with the city even if it meant we may never win together. 
Now, if you're ahead of me on the analogy, connecting the dots, that's what I was talking about leading into this. Uh, it may sound like I'm equating Jesus to Russell Westbrook. That's not true. I'm not doing that. Um, I'm actually saying that Jesus is better than Russell Westbrook. Um, see, Jesus could identify with us on the cross. He could stay with us in our pain, in our struggles, like Russell did, and leave us there, and we'd say, thanks, Jesus, that's awesome. I appreciate you trying and feeling the struggle. But that's not all he does. See, Jesus does all of that, and then he brings us out of the struggle. He saves us. End of the basketball analogy. It worked really well in my head. We'll see how it worked there. But not only did Jesus identify and suffer with us, a people who hurt, but Jesus on the cross in this moment in Mark 15 saved people who hurt. And we see this throughout the Bible. When God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were enslaved, they were suffering in Egypt, and God sent Moses to deliver his hurting people. Exodus 3 says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. See, throughout the Bible, God sees his people. He knows them. He knows their sufferings. And he delivers them. On the cross, Jesus identified with his people. He knew them, their suffering, and he said, I'm here to save you. So do we hear Jesus telling us this today? Saying, I see you, I know you, I know you're hurting, and I'm here to save you. Even in our passage today, um, we have an example of someone kind of catching a glimpse of Jesus doing this. This centurion, I read again verses 37 to 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So centurions were Roman military officers. That's who that is. And this centurion in particular is here to see to the execution of Jesus and the other prisoners on the cross. So this is a guy, Roman military officer, here to make sure this execution goes through. Um, Now, Jesus' message was only him quoting Psalm 22 and saying, hey, I'm suffering with you, identify with your hurt. Saying, I hurt like you, that probably wouldn't do much for the centurion. I'm guessing there's various cries of agony from those being executed by the state all the time, but there's something different in Jesus, and this guy saw it. Jesus crying out in his final breath, his death on the cross, wasn't just an act of suffering or grand act of love, though it was those things. Jesus' death on the cross was a completion. See, the centurion's confession only makes sense if Jesus' loud shout on the cross isn't just one of pain, but one of victory. A victory over death and pain and sin. See, when Jesus first quotes Psalm 22, he's not just identifying with those who suffer 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's also declaring that he's the one we've been waiting on, and he's done what he came to do. He's saying, I suffer like David in Psalm 22. I feel the same problems, the same pain as David in Psalm 22, but I'm also the answer to Psalm 22. Like I mentioned earlier, in the first half of Psalm 22, David's suffering, and he's scared. In the second half, he's celebrating, and he's worshiping God suddenly. Why? Because the things that were bringing harm to David, whatever it may have been, they weren't there forever. David saw death standing over him, ready to take him, so he cried out to God, questioning God, saying, where are you? Where are you in all my pain, my hurt? And then he saw the Lord deliver him from his suffering. He ends the psalm. If you notice, the end of Psalm 22, he says, he has done it. David's praising God. He's been delivered from death, and he thanks God for it. But Jesus does more than that. On the cross, Jesus isn't just delivering from death, but he's instead delivering and saving through his death. When Jesus is dying on the cross, and he cries out, He's crying out in the pain and the agony of death, but he has something else in sight too. See, Jesus knows that with all the pain of the cross, all the hurt on the cross, he knows there's something coming in a few days. A resurrection. A defeat of death. And when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has pain in mind, but he also has Easter in sight. He knows what's coming. He knows what's already been won. This is why the centurion, this Roman military officer, there to see to the execution of Jesus, this is why he stops and says, this has to be the Son of God. This guy had seen hundreds of criminals crucified, probably. And this horrifying sight, what was going on on the cross, wasn't anything new to him. He'd seen this happen. He woke up that morning thinking just another day at the office. But he'd never seen someone like this. Jesus died a very real death. He died because his heart stopped beating and pumping blood to his body. He died because oxygen quit filling his lungs just like us. He died a normal physical death like everyone that's ever died before. Jesus was a regular man, completely mortal, like you and I. The centurion, the Roman officer, had seen this gruesome death probably hundreds of times. But he never seen someone like this. He never seen a normal man die with power and with assurance, and with confidence, the way Jesus had. And it shook him to his core. He knew this guy's different. Everything about this death seemed normal, but the man it was happening to did not. Truly, this man was the Son of God, he said. See, the centurion saw a guy suffering, but he didn't just see a sufferer. He saw a deliverer and a savior. And in this is this who we see when we see Jesus? Do we see someone who identifies with our suffering and also promises to save us from our suffering and our sin? Now, while the centurion uh, was recognizing Jesus for the very first time and who he was, there's another group of people in this story uh, who have actually known Jesus for a while. The story of death of Jesus and Mark leaves us with a brief mention of some of the women in Jesus' life, the two Marys. It says this in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. 
When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, I think it's easy to read this and feel like it's a throwaway line, just including some people who were there. Um, It's interesting, though, to note these women because of stuff that's not explicitly said here. So we know that Judas betrays Jesus. We know Peter denied him three times on the cross, and it stands to reason that some of the other disciples were probably scattered around, running around, maybe scared for their life, fearing for their life, possibly fleeing the scenes because they thought they'd be killed themselves. And who remained? We know from the book of John that the disciple John himself, we know John the disciple stayed close by. And the other people that we know were the two Marys who stuck close to Jesus. Why is this interesting? Because these women didn't run from the moment. In fact, I read one author that John Calvin talked about. Uh, He made the point that not only did these women stay near to Jesus when times got tough, but when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were like writing their gospel accounts, like writing this book out, they probably actually had to go to these women to get the story straight because they were the ones that stuck around. Most of these guys didn't know exactly what had happened because they were running and scared or weren't there, but the people who saw the whole thing were the women close to Jesus. If you wanted the facts, you had to go to them. And this is important because, again, talking about the context and culture of the time that this book was written, this is against the culture at the time. At this time, in this culture in Rome, women weren't given much respect or acknowledgement. It would be crazy for a man to go to a woman to get a story straight. To hear from her what happened, but that's likely what had to happen here. The book of Mark shows us that these women mattered and that their story and their presence mattered. These were women who knew who Jesus was and they trusted what he said. Despite the danger it posed, they stayed near to him when he was dying. These were women who already knew and trusted who Jesus was. And so in closing, that's what they did. So what are, what are we doing today? I'm calling you and I'm calling me. I was told not to do that, and I did it. Um, I'm calling you, and I'm calling me, that we can rest in this, that this gospel, that this Jesus is for people who hurt. If you're hurting today, Jesus is for you. You don't have to wait until the hurt's gone to be ready for Jesus. He's already there saying, I see you. I feel your pain. It's finished, and you're safe with me. And look, if you don't know this Jesus, I encourage you to respond like the centurion did. To consider that truly this man was the Son of God. Truly this man on his cross can bear my sin and how I've hurt others and how I've been hurt myself. This Jesus is for you. But now if you've seen this Jesus and you know him and you know what he's about, I'm encouraging you to stay close to Jesus like the women in the story. Because you need to see him up on that cross suffering with you and for you. And you need to see him conquering death and saving you. And you know what else? I'm also encouraging you to stay near to Jesus because other people need to hear about him too. They need to get the story straight. And by you seeing your sin and your suffering up on that cross with Jesus and him saving you, you've got everything you need to get the story straight for others. So who was this guy? What was he doing? Why did he die? He died to save a group of sinners and sufferers like you and me and to show us that there's a better way in him. So take your burdens Take your pain. Throw it on Jesus. Let him take them. He can handle them. 
He can handle all your hurt and all your pain. He identifies with you on the cross because he sees you. And he knows you. And he wants, and he wants to know and bear your suffering. If you hurt, he is for you. What a friend and what a savior we have in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Do it. thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, uh, being for a people who suffer and a people who hurt. Thank you for seeing us in that, not expecting us to be cleaned up and pain-free, but entering with us in th- into that and delivering us from it. Uh, thank you for friends here at Christ Central and how they're uh, working with you and for you and in their community, God. Um, thank you for a blessing they are to me and my family. And thank you for uh, just your word, God, and your Jesus. Um, thank you for seeing us and feeling us and saving us, God. In your name I pray. Amen.